Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Gray Cook. Gray is a physical therapist and strength conditioning coach, teacher, lecturer, author, and mentor. In life, you occasionally encounter unique people who are a special combination of thought-creating and thought-provoking. Gray is one of those people. He's been on a mission in his career in life to change the way we see human movement, how we affect it, and how we live sustainable and productive lives with our bodies. I had the blessing to run into this man 20 years ago, and it changed and shaped my life forever after. The opportunity to sit down and chat with him for an hour is indeed an honor and a privilege, for if there ever was a person who exemplified the title of this podcast, Leave Your Mark, it would indeed be Gray Cook. Welcome, Gray. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you for saying that. That's that's very, very, very nice. Thank you. Nice to have you here, bud. It's uh, a rare occasion. Uh, I was saying this to somebody. One of the, the selfish reasons why I started this podcast is that when I bump into people that I have a great deal of respect for or enjoy conversing with at conferences, what have you, there's always so much going on that the opportunity to really sit down and have a good conversation it's very rare and we are always so, so busy. So this gives me a pause and opportunity to have those kinds of conversations and somebody that uh, I'm, I'm excited to sort of chat with for a little while. If we go back in your life, um, you know, where it all started, you uh, were born uh, to a family with a Methodist minister as a father, you know, what, what was that like growing up? Was that challenging to be under that kind of uh, Papa or was it, was it, you know, what was that all about? Well, it was an interesting scenario because actually my brother was born uh, in a minister's family. I was born in a businessman's family because my dad actually became a minister when I was 10 years old. So in 1975, my dad uh, left the business world. And, and all the things he'd accomplished there and felt called to the ministry. And as, as God often does, he, he asks you to do something and throws you a few surprises. So my mom found out she was pregnant at the exact same time. My dad switched jobs and definitely changed our income. So we moved from Virginia Beach on the East Coast where he was a vice president of a, a pretty, pretty up-and-coming company and he was called to the ministry. So we moved to dry Fork, Virginia, which is, uh, it's basically, if you've seen the discovery, uh, show channel moonshiners, that's not near us. That is us. Okay. So anyway, we, you know, a little, little surfer dude, beach kid, 10 years old or whatever. We moved to dry Fork, Virginia. My dad becomes a Methodist minister of two small rural churches in the Southern, uh, Piedmont of Virginia, where, you know, tobacco is grown and very ruled, um, um, area, just good 
country people sort of where he grew up. So, you know, I went through the transition and then watched my dad in his early formative years of becoming a, a both uh, preacher and a minister preacher on Sunday minister the other five days and, and watching the way he, he used some of the real life experiences in his business life and in his growing up on a farm to actually create a more relevant message with the scripture. And I think that probably influenced me because you and I both sat in chairs where I definitely think people in the scientific professions use complexity for profit. And I've always enjoyed the the quotes of Mark Twain, where he takes concepts that the philosophers can go 10 pages on and he'll put it in two doggone sentences that set your shit straight pretty quick, you know? And I, I appreciate that. It's, it's nice. They, they, you can recall those quotes. And my dad spoke that way and carried himself that way, uh, in the ministry in, in, in a different way than I saw other ministers behave. And I think that that probably influenced me. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm, I'm the firstborn, So I get the driver's license first. I make the first F I break the first bone. I wreck the first car. So the preacher's kid, the redheaded preacher's kid, uh, <laughs> moniker followed me on through high school a little bit, the, the troublemaker, but yeah, I, I was born to a businessman and then switched over to a, a preacher as a dad. So, so you, you would go to the, to church on the, on Sundays and sort of listen to your dad preach and kind of take that in and. And was that an influence in the and in the character and and sort of direction you've taken in your life? Because in some ways, the way you speak is uh, not that it's I wouldn't say it's preach oriented, but it certainly is sermon esque in some ways when you talk. So is that something you took away from your father? Yeah, I, I you know whether whether it was simply installed genetically or whether it's something that I got just from listening to him speak. But you know, he made he made. Uh, principles, uh, come alive in, in the analogies he used and the stories he told in the, um, word pictures. And I found that that is when you come to an area where there's controversy and where there's debate and where there's good and bad science, when you come to an area like that and you want to take a leadership role, the first thing you do is establish communication and accountability. Make sure, make sure you know what I'm saying. And I want you to know that I'll know if you didn't do it, but I got to make sure you know what I'm talking about first. And I realized, you know, uh, when I took the reins of the very first clinic where I was the director, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is getting ready to go sideways because we all are doing different things. We are not functioning as a team. We're not functioning the way stuff went in, in, in football. We're functioning like track athletes. Each one of us is an Island of ourselves, And so we're a clinic with, you know, 12, 15 therapists, everybody's doing their own thing. And I'm like, um, that's, that's probably not good for long-term sustainability because we will end up competing with each other or delivering a lesser result. If we don't agree on some things, we're going to have different specialties, but there's no reason why our standard operating procedures should be the same. A lot of pilots fly for Delta, right? They've all got the same standard operating procedure and then their unique skills kick in after that, not before that. And I found that, um, you know, therapists and, and chiropractors and athletic trainers have never really had to submit to that type of standard operating procedure unless it's emergency response. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're great again, you know, but, but when it comes to clinical decision-making, there's a lot of, 
there, there's a lot of feelings and habits and stuff like that that take precedent over good sound logic, communication, and accountability. And, and I just think that the way to create that is to answer everybody's why statement first. Don't give people rules, regulations, standards, and forms to fill out if they don't know why they're doing it. And as soon as they know why they're doing it, they'll realize that these are the details that are necessary to execute why. But I've always tried to lecture from a standpoint that if, if you don't know why I'm here um, or why we're doing this, let me establish that first. Because we can debate how and what forever, but if we can't establish why we're here, um, then then we probably shouldn't move further into the next arguments we get to have. What were some of the influences in your, your youth or your formative years that uh, if you look back now kind of set that table for you in the sense that you had that, uh, that, that connection with the why or that connection with with, uh, where you wanted to go in your life? Um, I've always been fascinated by discovery and, and elegant problem solving. Um, you know, when I was exposed to, uh, you know, uh, core discovery, Lewis and Clark, you know, journey to the West. I mean, at one time we thought there were dinosaurs (laughs) on the other side of the Mississippi. We didn't know, you know, but a couple of guys had to grab some canoes and check it out. And in, in our field, uh, that's sort of where I like to be. Put me on the tip of the spear and let me go somewhere we haven't gone before. Um, I'm not trying to write a book or create a course. I'm just trying to figure out the the truth in this situation. And then if the FMS team is able to develop <laughs> an article or an insight or an educational workshop out of it, that's fine. But I'm going down this trail with or without you. And I'll tell you what I found when I come back. And and so that that getting just enough um, uh, equipment, time, space, or whatever to go out on the, on the edges and see what's out there. Anybody who's ever done that has, uh, I've loved it. They're there. I've studied a lot of, uh, unique people that, that people don't think that I would have ever studied, um, simply because they did, they did something. They took a journey that they weren't supposed to take, or they did something and they had a few simple principles and they stuck to them and it gave them the ability to change the world or change perspective. And so anybody who's ventured out and done that, um, not overly prepared because one of the things that came out of growing up in a rural area. And as soon as my dad became a minister, we, we didn't have any resources. We were, we weren't, if we were poor, we didn't know it, but I'm pretty sure by today's standards, we would have been right at the, right at the bottom economically. But my dad and and a lot of the guys in our community, the farmers I worked for and the kids I grew up with, I think everybody in this area uh, prized resourcefulness over resources. Mm. And so many of the people I lecture to in sports medicine and physical rehabilitation come to me and, and they'll tell me why they can't implement something because they don't have the resources. They don't have the space or whatever. And I'm like, that's exactly where my company came from with absolutely no budget and no research grants and no funding from a friggin' shoe company that they're, they all come later, you know, mm-hmm. after you after you already did it by yourself, everybody wants to be on that float. But when you're doing it by yourself, you are simply being more resourceful with the same resources your competition has. And as you and I both know, that wins games, it creates businesses, it keeps restaurants open, you know, it's that resourcefulness and 
I don't often have people asking me those questions. How can you become more resourceful? They're always telling me that they can't do what I've done because they didn't have the resources. And I'm like, you can't start with less than I started with. You simply can't. <laughs> you know, if you got on shoes, <laughs> you got the same thing I started with. And, and, you know, Lee Burton and myself that sort of founded FMS are both from this, this zip code. Uh, Lee, Lee, Lee's family went to my dad's church. And even though we're a few years apart in age, so we didn't play high school sports together, we both come from this area. And so when we've had crises in our business and our clinics and things we've done, we've always leaned on our resourcefulness. We never expected that, you know, the equity line of credit was what's going to get us out of this. It, it's our intellect. It's our problem solving. It's our ability to be resourceful. So anytime, um, there is an underdog story, an underfunded situation, I'm totally inspired by that. Um, just because that, that keeps us humble and lets us know that our greatest technical asset is still between our ears, not an app that we just downloaded. So I'm going to read something to you, uh, for each podcast that I do, I discovered a book a number of years ago called the day you were born. It combined numerology with astrology. And I actually interviewed the lady who wrote it about uh, three podcasts ago named, named Linda Joyce. And it kind of changed my life because I found my purpose in it. I uh, found a statement about my purpose and in each purpose statement based on the day you were born. It also has a bit of a quote, and the quote that it said in mind was one that I had already sort of connected with. So it was a very powerful moment for me. So you're a Sagittarius 7, and your purpose is to create through the power of your beliefs something divine, something that uplifts the soul of man. You have in your composition a mighty genius for expression, which has escaped discipline, H.G. Wells. The Sagittarius 7 lives in a world of beauty, imagination, and fantasy. When they learn how to ground themselves, they, can't, they can be geniuses. The Sagittarius 7 affects change in the world or follows a great idea or person who they believe has these powers. They feel the need to contribute to something meaningful to the world. And you are aligned with Mr. Beethoven. <laughs> wow i read that it was quite cool because uh you know you actually have a parallel to another gentleman that i um have a great deal of uh, respect for very similar and that's what was kind of eerie about a guy named steve norris who's a really talented uh, physiologist up in canada who's from the uk that i interviewed a little while ago and you're both very similar very you know you just seem to digest information, understand information and express information. And you're both on a, on a trajectory to change the world somehow. So good on you for following your purpose, sir. No, I did. You, you just described the situations where I feel best. And, and the thing that, that I, usually resist is grounding. And yet that's, that's the reason I think I grew up with the family I grew up with and married the girl I married because that, that's the only thing that keeps this helium balloon on the ground. <laughs> otherwise I'm, I'm spinning on out. Lee, Lee Burton, his favorite thing is here comes Taz again, like the Tasmanian devil from Looney Tunes. It's like, you know, and I'm looking for something to focus on. I'm the ADHD kid with dyslexia. So the conventional way of educating didn't work for me. And you learn very early in life. If you've got dyslexia, you can't trust symbols because they don't look the same to you every time. But I also figured out I could trust patterns. So I learned how to read people's behavior and patterns. And I realized that when, when I was a young kid, um, I couldn't always get a command of the material the way the teacher was teaching me, but I knew how to make the teacher like me. 
And I figured if the teacher liked me, I didn't think it'd get me an A when I deserved a D, but I might squeeze by with a C when I deserved a D. And until I figured it out, I got to college and then I just started doing word clearing and active listening. I started listening at a different level. And every time I heard a word I didn't know, I made sure that the next time I saw that word, I knew it. And so just by enhancing my vocabulary, I learned to become a a pretty good listener. But, um, that's where I think that the, the ability to look for a pattern, not a symbol has allowed me not to rest comfortably on digital numbers or technology. You know, there's only uh, one number between hypertensive and non-hypertensive, right? Who got to decide that number, right? You know, but patterns of hypertense behavior would probably be a much better indicator of early heart attack risk than a single number on a single day when you either have white coat syndrome, you know, or, or you're dehydrated. So it's so, it's so funny how modern technology with, with tech devices, we lean heavily on a single number to make our decision. And I've never, I've never relied on that. Give me a few patterns and I'll, I'll give you a perspective that, um, uh, has less, um, uh, uh, unsupported confidence, I guess, you know? And so, um, I guess the, if, if I could point the, the sort of Sagittarius mindset at anything, it's been in, in clinic, in sports and whatever, we're so hung up on a single number or a break point that a human being identified that we're sometimes missing behavioral patterns that if we could see them clearly would, we would make completely different decisions in a very unified way, but we can't see those patterns because a lot of our devices are made to zoom before they focus, right? If, if you zoom in a camera before you create focus, you do get closer to the image, but you still don't have a clear perspective of what you're looking at. And too many times, I think that with our modern technology, we, we zoom in before we have a clear perspective of what we want more information on. You know, so. How did you find physical therapy or did it find you? How did, how did that come, come about for you? Huh. Um, well, right up until the time that I realized that, that I might want to uh, be in physical therapy, I was pretty dead set that I wanted to be a forest ranger. I wanted to be on the top of a mountain somewhere, sitting up in a tower, looking through binos, deciding if it was going to be a forest fire today or not. And then I wanted to ride my dirt bike the rest of the day and just so, patrol about 10,000 acres, you know, just keep things, keep things good. And uh, then I started looking at physical development. I saw a few of those films they put on right before the Olympics of how an athlete, you know, develop themselves into a decathlete or, or just, you know, um, the, the way that, that people were self-coached and, you know, stories like Jim Thorpe and some of these athletes that, that excelled in multiple sports. And I'm just started, got fascinated in the, the art and science of physical development. And, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't know there was such a thing as a strength coach. I just thought whatever coach coached your sport knew a little bit about lifting heavy things that would benefit that sport. So I never realized being a strength coach was a profession. And, uh, I was talking to my dad one day cause he did a lot of hospital visits and he said, there's a guy over at the hospital named Smitty and he's a physical therapist. I'm like, what's a physical therapist? And he's like, well, he's like a doctor, but 
he sort of does way more rehab stuff. And I'm like, well, tell me more. And he goes, all I know is when any of the doctors in the hospital cafeteria have an anatomy question, that's who they go to. And I'm like, I like that. I like that. I'm, I'm not interested in pharmaceuticals or chemistry, but having an excellent command of the, the human body as a map and a territory. I like that. I, I think that's, that's a good starting point. So I figured out and started looking at this guy, uh, Smitty and it was Charlie Smith, Virginia state physical therapy license number nine. So <laughs> the big joke is when, uh, <laughs> when the, when they got to Jamestown and the guy jumped off the boat and turned his ankle, Smitty was standing there with a bunch of Indians and taped him up. I mean, that's how, but no, he, this guy went to Iwo Jima as a 17 year old Marine. Cause his parents signed for him. He came back and went through the army training equivalent of what was a physical therapist or restoration therapist at the time, uh, learned to fabricate braces and everything. And I volunteered under him and I'm like, I want to, I want to do this. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to be in the physical game, but I don't want to control things with chemistry. I want to control things with physics. I, I, I like, I like the laser. I like the ultrasound. I like my hands. I like acupuncture needles. I like manips with cavitation. That's just, that's getting into your work. And, and, and then all of a sudden I realized later on in physical therapy, that the only thing that I think other professions do better than what we do in physical rehabilitation is they have better and tighter feedback loops. That's, that's what got me on this journey. Cause I saw a lot of therapists that I didn't think were doing much. And yet the patient would be like, Oh my God. And then I saw somebody who invested a lot of work and the patient could barely perceive a difference had occurred. And it got me on this train of thinking that, you know, sometimes the most jacked up people are very poor evaluators of whether they're better or not. And so when it comes to human movement, we weren't setting many baselines relative to pain. So if we made somebody move better, but we didn't modulate their pain less, they weren't aware that they, their balance got better, their flexibility got better. They were focused on their pain as they should be. It's a signal, a primal signal. But I realized, oh shit, physical therapy is an amazing and wonderful and powerful profession. And if we don't watch it, if we let our empathy take charge, we're going to wind up chasing pain with physical modalities and exercise instead of solving the reason that pain is being sent to the brain as a signal of disharmony. So that's where I really started saying, man, I really need to check myself pre and post treatment. And I really need to make sure that I can help this patient in spite of themselves. Because as much as I love what I saw Smitty doing, I'm like, I can't tell if these patients are responding because you're a good person or if they're responding because you made a physically better decision than their own central nervous system was making for them. And so I realized that, that if we're going to do great, great things and make great discoveries in physical rehabilitation, um, we got to put down the goniometer and see movement in a different way. We got to, we got to put down our, our little devices and step back and realize that a baby learns to walk without any outside intervention whatsoever. All you got to do is get the danger out of the way and they will spontaneously become bipedal. And if a baby can go from an infant to walking, okay. And, and, 12 to 15 months, then I think we need to reconsider 
the the operating platform of of human movement because the only thing that this entire planet agrees on when it comes to human movement is the World Health Organization acknowledges that the first 21 months of life, you go through um, development milestones or what we call gross motor milestones. And that's the ability to roll, uh, sit upright, unsupported, crawl, kneel, squat, stand, and then on through running. And after that, we don't agree as a planet on any other aspect of human movement, but we all agree on the original operating system and crawl comes before walk. The only problem is when it comes to rehabilitation, I don't see many ACLs crawling before they walk. And if we were following the original operating system, we're not saying everybody needs to crawl. I'm saying if you can't, then I got to figure out why, because that is in a daisy chain with the next thing you're going to want to do. Not because a biomechanist can see crawling and walking, but because your central nervous system needs that stage to get ready for the next stage. And it might be the reciprocal gait or the weight shifting or whatever, but I'm not going to question the operating system, mm-hmm. you know, and, and think of what we do. If, if that first 21 months of life is your gross motor operating system, then hockey, golf, and mogul skiing are applications, right? Anytime these applications injure the original operating system, you would, you would remove that application from your phone, wouldn't you? Cause the fact that your phone has a, a operating system is what allows all the others to work. So the app can never run the operating system. The operating system runs the app. So the minute your endeavor starts to erode your movement pattern, then that should be an indicator that the original operating system is eroding too. And you and I both know that if I'm working with an NFL quarterback, I know I'm going to have a shoulder mobility asymmetry and stuff. And that's never going to go away as long as they're doing that highly specialized thing. I'm saying if I can see it in a 12 year old, that's a big problem. And if you break your arm and I can see a huge left, right difference, that's a problem. So we know that certain applications like, um, uh, you know, doing certain sports will have a, sometimes even a detrimental effect on the way you move. And so we create these corrective strategies and these programs that keep sport from beating up your body too bad. And, and you and I have invested a lot of time in doing that. The problem is, uh, the feedback loop. What's the feedback loop that tells us the app the, the, the short-term endeavor, that little specialized thing that's only a small fragment of your life, when did that take control of your operating system? I want a measurement device that tells me that. And if I've got that measurement device, then I think I'll always know the best program to maintain you, the best uh, protocol to rehab you, the best diagnosis to give you. Mm-hmm. So. Well- when you look back at uh, that formative period in your life when you were at school and coming and coming out of and starting to work, what was there an influence or do you just att- attribute it to the way your mind works that you were able to see this concept of, of examining the why and maybe the, the proactive sort of approach to using all these skill sets? Because one of my th- things in, in this industry has always been that the therapeutic community kind of looks at things from a very funnel method of assessment process, diagnostic, you've got a supraspinatus tendonitis, and then we're going to do all this stuff. And what you brought to the table and what I've uh, sort of lived my life by is, is not getting so focused and myopic about that, 
but but understanding all the whys of what's going into it, or at least considering them. And that during our youth was not something that anybody really thought about. So what was the driver that clicked the Rubik's cube moment for you that clicked that? Was there a personal influence or was it just something that your brain sort of, Hey, I got to look at this. Well, I think, I think it probably manifested itself the very first time toward the end of my, my time in, in physical therapy school. I, I got into the university of Miami uh, as an alternate, I was at Pfeiffer College down in North Carolina, um, uh, athletic training major. Um, also had a, um, a minor in exercise science and a minor in psychology. Um, and when I got into Miami, which I didn't think I was going to get in, I mean, PT school is really hard to get in. So I just said, ah, you know, you apply and, you know, for three years and then you finally get in. Well, I got, I got, um, I didn't get in. And then all of a sudden I'm walking through the dorm one day at Pfeiffer. I was an RA in the dorm and the, the payphone rings, right? This is, uh, this is, uh, 1988. Uh, I answer the phone. Yeah. It's university of Miami asking for gray cook. Cause that's the number I put down. I'm not getting in. They already told me I couldn't get in. They didn't need a number. I just, you know, I didn't have a cell phone. So, um, whoops, just a second. I lost, uh, video. Yeah. Am I back? You're back now. Okay. Uh, and, and so I answered the phone. They said, this university of Miami, we're calling for gray cook. Uh, a spot is opened up. Uh, we would like to invite you to take a seat in this year's class of physical therapy school. It starts in seven days. We need a yes or no answer right now. <laughs> Miami's pretty expensive. Uh, and this is in the day of the master's degree. And I'm like, yes. And I hung up the phone I'm like, Oh my God, I'm never going to pay this off. So <laughs> packed up, you know, everything I had, I went down to Miami and literally I was, uh, I, I came from a town with one stoplight and I moved to Miami in my Ford Ranger with a surfboard on top. Um, at the, the, maybe the last two seasons, Miami vice was on TV. So I'm dating myself pretty good. Uh, I laid low and I didn't say a word because academically I was at the bottom of my class, but what I looked at, I had not accomplished most of what these people had accomplished. And I was one of the youngest people there as, as I just let things soak in and was listening to what my neuro teachers were saying about PNF proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. And when I was looking at the ways that we would rehab somebody with a brain injury, and I was looking at the ways we would rehab somebody over in orthopedics with a body injury, I started realizing that we were missing something. These people were tapping into the brain knowing that something was wrong. Now these people over here didn't assume the body was free of faults. But these people over here were making the assumption that the brain was pristine. And in any orthopedic situation, I think we think the CNS is optimized and all we got to do is get the patella to track better. If the CNS was optimized, the patella would be tracking better, you know? So I, I realized that we're in orthopedics and sports, we're not tapping in to the amazing 
neuropotential where we can actually heal the brain from a bad pattern while we're rehabbing the body from the same thing. And I've been hearing some amazing quotes lately where the body is the subconscious mind. The conscious mind is where you focus your attention and the body is everything else. So it's walking and whatever. So I asked myself this question because you wanted to know when it switched the, the, toward the end of physical therapy school, I start studying philosophy because my brain is just so fried on memorizing the brachial plexus and everything like that. I start studying philosophy and learning how to ask a better why question. So why do these people assume that the brain is good? They always do. So I said, to myself, if I've got to do a, a, a master's thesis, a research project and get published to get out of this place, I want to see if I can do a PNF pattern that will improve the vertical leap, not in a week of training in a few minutes. So he set up this little research program to have people jump against these really heavy bungee cords, basically just stress out the legs. Then we had people just practice jumping. And then we had people jump with little pieces of yellow TheraBand in their hands. And what I realized is if you jump with TheraBand in your hands and it's anchored to the floor, if you jump a little off center to the right, the bands exaggerate your mistake. They, they over uh, stimulate you and sort of guide you back. So I had three techniques. One was control and practice. One was just, let's throw random acts of resistance and shit and hope you get bigger and stronger and faster. Cause that's, that was the conventional wisdom. And then I said, let's throw a self refining feedback loop. That's nonverbal at somebody. So here's what we did. We randomly placed you in one of those three groups and we tested your vertical leap, both reaction time and how high you jumped. We did one of those three techniques. You practice 10 jumps, you do 10 jumps against heavy resistance, or you do 10 jumps against really light resistance that gives you a tug forward, basically just exaggeration mistake. Now, immediately after the technique, Everybody got a little bit better on their jump height and a little bit worse on reaction time due to fatigue. But here's where the, the story got cool. My neuro professor was my advisor and she goes, let's go have everybody rest for 30 minutes because nobody will debate the fact that all the benefits of, of warm up have been negated by a half hour rest. We just, you know, less than three minutes of activity, 30 minutes of rest. So any improvement above the original measure on any of these groups could almost be perceived as a motor learning, not a muscle warm-up effect. The funny thing was the control group and the resisted group went back to normal or got worse. And the group that had the enhanced proprioceptive feedback, basically PNF with not putting your hands on people, not only jumped an inch to an inch and a half higher, males and females, their reaction time from stimulus to finish got better. So they had a twofold improvement in power. And when you look back at what happened, they only had a total of 16 repetitions, three pre-test, 10 uh, sampling the movement and three post-test. They rested for a half hour and then came back and were retested. And it blew me away that what looked like almost the easiest thing had the greatest benefit from the CNS. And, and I realized that, oh my goodness, we're not tapping into this in rehab. 
but what if I did that right before basketball practice? If I could have a twofold improvement, both in your organization power, your timing, because we know I didn't add, I didn't make better acting and myosin there. I just made you use your stuff better. Um, and we've got that reaction time. Then not only did we find a great prep technique, we found a great CNS priming capability. So if we're going to do range of motion, if we're going to do some, some manual therapy, why can't we do something then to send a better CNS to run that, that part we just finished working on? Why can't we do both at the same time? And what I find out is when we look at movement, the inherent flaw is what philosophers say. It's in our speech and semantics. And, and you and I could be sitting in an airport and I could say, look at that guy. And you'd be like, yep, looks like a tight hip flexor. And I would agree with you. But what we really mean is he's not extending his right hip and we should stop right there because he could have a dorsiflexion restriction. That looks like a tight hip flexor. He could have some low back derangement, a scoliosis. He could have a knee that doesn't fully extend, but we can't see that through pants. We see that hip not finishing. So the fact that we jump to conclusions and say the most common reason for not extending your hip fully is maybe a hip flexor issue. We need to stop right there. That guy's not extending his right hip. And we should stop right there. And if we could test it, we could get the answer, but just say what you can see. Don't say that car's yellow. Say the side of the car I'm looking at is yellow. <laughs> and I know that's a hard thing for us to do when we become professionals. But when I started studying philosophy and I started studying all the professions that had to go through a renaissance or a revolution, they were, they were broken and rebuilt from the inside, not the outside. Mm. They, they, they had to be rebuilt from the inside by the people who broke it the first time. Um, and that's where I think our semantics in, in our profession are our biggest detriment because we're so empathetic and we're trying to get so quickly to the solution that I think sometimes we, we don't sometimes find the weakest link or the problem. So what do you, what do you think is, um, what's something that you would say to, to somebody going through that process you would call an enlightenment of that's outside the box of what they would typically do to prepare themselves to be what, what we do. So to your point, read philosophy to your point, like how do you get people to see the world differently than they see currently? And, and I don't have to explain this to you. Anybody who's been to physical therapy realizes you walk in the front door, you fill out your name, you come back. There's a large percentage of the time in physical therapy here in the States where you're not being touched by another person. You're, you're, you're laying there with some type of modality and some heat or cold. Okay. If you look, if, if I truly was going to be a asshole and went into a physical therapy clinic and I was going to, I was going to be that investigative reporter. And I asked people, why are you doing this modality? Why are you doing this modality? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What would inherently come is most people dispensing those modalities won't know exactly why they're dispensing them. And if they do know why, they'll be basing their dispensing of that modality on an anti-inflammatory model. I'm trying to reduce inflammation. Okay. That's like, I'm trying to reassemble this computer. Good. When are you going to bench test it? Just because you put this computer back together doesn't mean it's going to run the programs at home. When are you going to run the programs? When are you going to test it against a baseline? What are the vital signs you're shooting for? 
as soon as they get down inflammation, they assume that you had a episode, you became inflamed. Okay. And we're going to get the inflammation down and everything should spontaneously reset. And very often, if we assume the problem is where the pain is, then it's very easy to focus your treatment and your modalities at the pain. And it's the fact that if we come at our profession and ask the questions that we would ask, I can put heat on myself at home. You don't need to charge me for that here. I can put ice on myself at home. And if you will show me the exercises and tell me why I'm doing them, then I should be able to do those at home if they're considered home exercises. Really, I need to be here for tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and jumpstart this system. Because the one thing I will say in a rehabilitation situation is I expect my therapist to be able to hit the reset button. If these people could self-serve them way, their way through rehabilitation, they, they should and they they should do that. But if you need to do something to reset the system, they're not operating at uh, a functional level. So you've got to show them what a functional level feels like and see if they can hold and maintain it um, to get to that independence and sustainability. And if we ask the question is, is our intervention supposed to promote a more independent and sustainable physical situation for this person, then I don't think we're delivering that. Mm-hmm. that that's that so, so i think we're giving people you know here do these exercises well you know you and i came through here where uh, you got a low back pain patient you've got the printout here go home and do these exercises that's that's assuming that that number one they can do them comfortably because any exercise we recommend that pushes you up against pain is going to push a new behavior against a primal behavior avoid pain Primal behavior is going to win. So the first rule I made for myself is don't dispense exercise on a regular basis for painful patterns. All right. If you're, if I got to take you into a painful pattern, my hands are going to be on you. We're going to be making eye contact. I'm going to be here with you every step of the way. Now I'm not saying discomfort. I'm saying, I'm not going to push you into an impingement. I'm not going to push you in to a malalignment or something like that. But I often see, you know, uh, exercises that are unbelievably uncomfortable for patients and they've been told you got to do it. You got to work through it. Now we're not talking post-surgical or something like that. And I think that cliche has become an excuse to say, well, they're just non-compliant. And before you know it, if you're a new grad, then everybody who's not getting better on your watch is either non-compliant or they have an opportunity for secondary gain. And that's not a good feedback loop because everybody who gets better is because of you and everybody who doesn't isn't, that's not a real good way to run your show. <laughs> Cause you know, that's, that's not the kind of feedback we want. Well, I think one of the big problems that still exists, it's, it's changed a lot and you're part of the reason why it's changed over time. But I, if you use the analogy of a car or a home, in the therapeutic and performance community, we're always looking at the outcome and saying, okay, well, you have a crack in your wall. I'm going to put plaster on it. I'm going to fix the crack. Well, why do you have a crack in the wall? What's going on? Why can't you jump vertically higher than you were doing these training, this training program? Well, I'm going to add more plyometrics. I'm going to add more load. So whether you're in the performance spectrum or in the therapeutic spectrum, it's always an outcome-based model. And so I'm going to treat the outcome. I'm going to treat the symptom instead of saying to your point at the start, why, why is this here? Why are you not performing at your best? Why are you having this injury? To me, when I look back at the, the, the first opportunity that I ever connected with you, I mean, that was 
you know, a very sort of shifting, I already had my own philosophical beliefs around that connecting with you sort of shifted that for me and really got me going in the direction I wanted to go in. And, you know, I, I still struggle with the fact that a lot of people still look at it and it's still being taught at its greatest, its basic level in most universities from that outcomes based uh, proposition. And, and even in the medical community, you know, it's all about drugs and what are you going to take and da, 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 to solve the crack in your wall. Yep. No, no outcomes. We, we need to look at outcomes. Outcomes are how we keep score. My point is we don't focus enough on process. And if you screw up the sequence of process, you screwed up everything. And so you only look at the outcomes that are, are achieved from what we think is the best current process we have available. And then as things change or situations or variables change, we keep looking at the process. If you, you won't, you won't always get the optimized outcome you want. The 80, 20 rule pretty much tells us that 80% of your result is due to 20% of your effort, not a hundred, 80% of the result you're getting is due to about 20% of your effort. Constantly working back to separate that 20% from all the other BS that's happening in this process is, is how you refine the system. And so it's, it's sort of that asymmetrical uh, way of looking at things in that my investment right here has huge dividends. My investment over there has very small dividends and people, people don't look at it that way. Um, and, and I think one of the, the inherent flaws is they don't realize how fast the human neurological system can learn something. If you will stage the experience, it's the best learning machine ever, you know, and you could say, well, we got Watson and it can beat a chess master. Try to get Watson to throw a friggin' fastball. Ain't going to happen. There's too many variables. You can give the best robotic arm and you can give 10 Watsons and we can't throw a fastball. And then all of a sudden decide to throw a curveball with the same device. All right. So when the human brain, and this is, this is amazing to me when the human brain first had to be in three places at once, I think it might've been on a persistence hunt or the first time we ever threw something because a persistence hunt means a bunch of people run an animal to death. That means you got to know which way they're going and where they're going to end up and blah, 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 and just keep moving. And when you throw something, you not only reflect on your past experience, but you stay connected in the moment and you also have to predict the future, which is why you have to lead whatever you're throwing at. So in a simple physical act, like running down an animal or like throwing an object, the human brain now becomes a creator and a prophet at the same time. We, we learn to reflect on past experience stay in the moment and actually anticipate the future. And as far as I know, this may have all preceded language. So if I'm going to teach you to move better, I think the first thing I want to do is remove all but the most necessary language. Um, because I honestly think that the lessons are right in front of us. A child is on their feet before they've got command of even four or five words. So, expecting us to verbalize people back into moving is, is not good. People, people don't talk about movement 
in their head, they feel it. And the language of movement is written in feel, not in words and pictures. And so the only way I know how you feel, Scott, if you come to me and you're, you're in pain and you're moving is I want to get a signature of the way you're moving, not just in the pattern that provokes your symptom, but in all the other patterns too, because that is the closest I'm ever going to be to know how you feel right? Because every one of us has got a movement pattern that's difficult. And it's very important for me to run all the people taking our courses. I want you to go through a movement screen or a movement assessment or some type of balance test before you give someone one, because every one of us will have a point of vulnerability. You're going to expose that on somebody in a few minutes with a lot of the tests me and my group have created. I want you to be sensitive to that vulnerability. Let them know that, that, it should be modifiable, but you've got to find that most vulnerable state first. And human beings are very used to compensating for that because it's a survival mechanism. So we've got to, we've got to quickly, if we're going to truly change movement, we've got to quickly know what they feel. I don't give a shit what you think, right? Because you could be thinking completely wrong about movement. I'm not going to worry about how you think right now. I can make you move better just through feel. And then talking about how that happened, that sequence will help you think better. So I think by what we've tried to do is have tangible physical examples of you. I'm going to put your body in shapes and postures and patterns and positions and not just one, but a bunch of them, no matter which level you come to me at. And therefore I'm going to have this sort of 360 degree perspective of how you feel, hopefully in different positions. Now I don't know exactly how you feel, but I felt the vulnerability standing on that right foot. You're feeling it standing on your left foot. And that connection point helps me get you out of this hole. Because then all I do is break down those activities and spoon feed them back to you with tighter feedback loops. So you change your perception before I expect your behavior to change. And that's where I think everybody's getting it wrong. If I don't adjust your perception, how am I going to change your behavior? Because you're already behaving correctly against the perceptions that you feel are happening. I've got to change your perception. This behavior is going to change. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of us come right at movement and we simply think if we strengthen the glute medius, we'll change the single leg stance behavior. You won't. My single leg stance behavior is a result of what I sense is required in single leg stance. And even though I'm not accomplishing good single leg stance, I can't break that feedback loop. So I've got to change perception before behavior, not talk you know, about it after. You know, what's amazing listening to you right now is that, you know, I've, done a bunch of work personally in the last few years on mindset. And then I ran into a gentleman named Jim quick recently. who does a whole bunch of stuff on memory and, and, and uh, learning. And the central philosophical premise of, of these things is that you have to connect with the feeling or the emotional element of what you're, you're doing if you're going to learn it really well. Um, so whether it's movement or whether it's actual information processing or your own mindset, the connectivity to the emotion and what you feel uh, is the, is the crux of it. Um, and that's, I mean, it's fascinating just listening to you go through that, but that seems to be a real central phenomenon that's becoming more and more, um, more and more obvious to people as we go along. 
I've completely um, reformatted the the way I come at corrective exercise, and and a lot of our exercises look the exact same way. But I've created a a way of sort of looking at that, where if you ever do prescribe a plan or a program or or something for somebody, and you want to know. Uh, where it's breaking down, um, you can easily look under the hood of, of this exercise and know exactly where it's breaking down. Um, and, and the first part is, uh, I think we got to get our movement assessment right. So we will know what pattern to confront. And, uh, but once we confront that pattern, everybody's going to get hung up at a different place in the way they process their way through it. And what I've, what I've learned is if I'm trying to change the way you move, it's nice if I can have your spine in at least three or four positions. The, the four positions um, would be a supported spine laying completely on the ground. That can be prone, supine, or sideline. The next spine is a suspended spine. You're in all fours. Your back is sort of slung like a hammock between your supporting limbs. And as long as you got one upper body component on the ground and one lower body. So, you know, side planking, um, would be a suspended spine, quadruped, crab walk. Those are all suspended spine. The next one is a stack spine. It's a vertical spine, but without you being on your feet. So that's got us kneeling, tall kneeling, half kneeling. And the fourth spine position that I think is unique is standing spine. If I can cover at least three of the four while I'm confronting the thing you couldn't do, because, you know, if, if you don't flex your hip well, we can look at explore hip flexion, loaded, unloaded, different positions. If the first position I put you in is easy and all I want you to do is become aware of your limitations and what you can do and wiggle around on the floor. The next one is I'm going to get you right up against that barrier and see if you'll give up your breathing sequence. Meaning most people, when they stretch, go about 10 degrees too deep into the stretch and shallow their breathing, thus sending a signal to their central nervous system that this is not a good thing. We're not going to be here that long. So don't worry about learning to be relaxed here. The opposite is actually true. When I get you into a stretch and we'll do, I don't know if you've seen the, the Bretzel stretch, probably one of our most uh, watched YouTube videos is just uh, me um, doing the Bretzel stretch with a really good looking brunette, which is why I think it's probably one of the most watched ones. Uh, but what I notice when I put you in a 3D stretch or a fashion stretch, most people change the way they breathe. And so I use this one command, whatever that position I picked, hopefully it's a good one. Um, I will say back up a little bit until you can cycle that full breath. And if you want to see me do that coaching session, I had some uh, kids in the clinic one time tall kneeling with a kettlebell up front and in back uh, going into rotation. And most people ambitiously cover more movement than they can breathe solidly through. So we get into a range of motion where you can't cycle that full breath. Well, usually we gave up biomechanics at the same time we're getting the shallow breath. So if you're not there to coach them through and tell them about their alignment, if you back them out of the stretch to the point where they can cycle the same breath they did when they weren't on any stretch at all, and then negotiate sort of like yoga, isn't it? <laughs> set, set a good breathing base, confront a situation where you may feel vulnerable or uncomfortable and don't let that situation control your breathing. You control your breathing and ease into the situation. That is yoga. All right. From a yielding response, will you summon that same breath in martial arts to create power? But if then I take you into that movement pattern, you're aware of the pattern, 
You're aware of that barrier. As soon as I get my hip right here, it's tight as it can be. Then I take you through the breathing sequence and just show you stop using tension to stretch, create the tension that you can still breathe with telling your CNS that you're still in homeostasis, negotiate the breath, not the tension, right? Or let off the tension till you can breathe. At the end, I want you up on your knees and vertical spine or on your feet, and that locks in the pattern to your CNS or hit save on the document. So, so much of my career, I think people see a bad movement and they want a one-off exercise that fixes it. And I'm like, you know, what I want to do is I'm going to offer you one exercise. It's going to take five minutes and there's three stations in that exercise. But if I can run the dysfunctional you through this end of the tube, what comes out of that end of the tube is subjectively and objectively better and your confidence and your reality line up a little bit better. Meaning that is the nutrient. That is the meal of movement you needed to eat to have that awareness on that end of it. And hypothetically speaking, um, I'm not sure your listeners know much about the movement screen, but the movement screen is simply running yourself through seven movement patterns. And people have always tried to put words in our mouth and say, we're trying to predict something by the way you do those seven patterns. And, and believe it or not, we can see, uh, maybe risky behavior or potential for better performance. But the one thing that I think nobody ever considered is what if I showed you the movement screen before I ask you to go through it? And I said, how are you going to do on the movement screen? And you're like, I'm going to do great. And I put you through the movement screen and you sucked. And I'm like, how do you think you did? I did great. Okay. As opposed to the person who, I don't know if I can do all those positions, but you do great. And we get to the other end of it and you still don't know you did great. Okay. Now who's at greater risk? The guy who moves like shit, but thinks he moves great or the person who moves great, but thinks they move like shit. The person who, who moves great, but thinks they don't is never going to challenge themselves injury-free their whole life. The other person is going to be riddled with injuries, not because they don't move well. Most pro athletes I've worked with that don't move well, know exactly where their limits are and they have great game in between their boundaries. Now, if they had bigger boundaries, that'd be better. But you and I both know some of these bodies aren't getting bigger boundaries. They're, they're right here. And if we push that, they break. So, I, I do realize that, that, you know, if you move poorly, we can't always change it, but we can make you very aware of it and you can have a very rich life. You just can't do that anymore or you can't do that thing. So your awareness of your movement is more important to me than how you move. Once you and I agree that you move like shit or you move well, now I do worry about the details of where, how, and why you do move that way. But if you think you're great and, and every other indicator says that you're not, then, uh, we got to spend more time making that relevant view. So instead of ever telling somebody how they scored on a movement test, the movement test shows me their worst movement obstacle. I then connect them with a movement experience that takes that from the cradle to standing but I do it in five to 10 minutes and usually it never takes that long again and they get it and they never ask me how many reps should I do or why am I doing this? I simply say, run through that tube once out the other end, things should be going good. If something feels like it's a little bit worse, you want to check it, check it again. I'm watching the movement baseline. When you come in the clinic, you're doing that when you go home. And most people are unbelievably compliant 
and become self-aware. And if you go through an exercise and you don't become self-aware, then what's your definition of the exercise? What, what, is, what is an exercise designed to do but make you more aware? Because eventually the exercise must turn into an activity, right? I mean, that's the whole reason we're doing exercises so we can have a, a bigger, more physical life. And, and sure, we have the, the sport of exercise now where people just do fitness for the sake of fitness. But as soon as the economy changes, we ain't going to have time for that. You know, <laughs> we'll still play our sports and stuff like that. But most of the time, if we're going to express physical energy with no benefit at all for, for any other person, we're just going to waste it on a treadmill or waste it on a kettlebell, you know. You, you could chop wood. You don't just need to hit the tractor tire and, and chopping wood is better feedback for good strikes. So <laughs> you're, um, you're so passionate about what you do and you're, there's so much expression and feeling in what you say, what's been the cost or the Achilles heel of being passionate about movement and about the stuff that you are all in on. Um, I, I get, I get frustrated that uh, people won't step out of their perspective and look at another perspective. And I try to talk about movement in an unintimidating way. So people will just dip their toe in the pool because if, if they step to this perspective over here where I think you and I try to stand and they can't see what we're seeing, I would not want them to uncomfortably stay there just because they thought they should. What I'm saying is, I will probably test drive the car before I write the review. And I, I feel like because I have challenged conventional wisdom, because I have challenged conventional movement education, people have felt the need to defend instead of realizing that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants trying to do what they did in their time. And, and I'm not trying to undermine anything. If anything, we're trying to add a perspective. So the, the, the dogma, the confirmation bias, the short sightedness, um, simply makes me want to say, you know, the, the Aristotle said this, the hallmark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it. I'm not asking people to accept what we're saying. I'm saying, can you entertain the thought at a medium level of competence and see if it gives you maybe an action point you wouldn't have had before. Maybe if it gives you a perspective, then you can decide now, does it have value? And, and I've always said, most people want me to comment on the relevance of an exercise. What's my baseline? What was it designed to change? I can't discuss exercise as the subject of a sentence because it's always the subject of the sentence is who you're applying it to. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of front squats, Greg? Well, uh, for your grandmother, for your 14 year old son, as opposed to back squats with bad form, I don't know where that's coming from, but I do know you're going to misquote me if I say anything at all. <laughs> so, so that, that's, that's gotten me just people, people that are, that are trying to defend, they're trying to be gatekeepers of what's already been proven obsolete. I mean, in, in, in your professional life, have we, have we put a dent in low back pain or ACLs? Statistically speaking. No. And, and in the meantime, uh, uh, obesity is getting worse and Western diseases are getting worse. So if you're in healthcare or fitness, um, whatever you're doing, stop doing it right now. Because, because if we're basing everything we do on outcomes, 180 is probably going to get you better results than what you're currently doing. Cause look where we're headed. And we all think we're a little more enlightened than the rest of the people, but you know, yeah. I don't know. 
So what's, what's been the most rewarding part of, of sharing yourself and your, and what you believe into, to a larger community? The connections. I, I think that, that I get uh, just like you, you, you've, you've handed me a lot of credit for a perspective that you were right at the tipping point for anyway. I was just this, I was the guy talking about it and you were the guy on the front row nodding. You, all I did was rephrased it in a way you're like, yes, yes, that's so. So I think there were a lot of people ready to talk a little cleaner and a little fresher about movement. Um, when I started doing it, I was just dumb enough to get up on stage and try to, oh, shucks, let me tell you what I think and, and do that. But I think that, that, that all of the amount of negativity or pushback I've ever gotten isn't even a drop in the bucket to the, the quality people I've connected with who are absolutely fine with saying, if I want to be a better version of myself, then I am going to experience a little bit of pain while the old version of myself goes away. I mean, you can't be a new version of yourself without amputating that old ego. It, you got to cut it out there. It's got a little cancer on it. So scoop it out and <laughs> trudge on. Um, so. What's your, what are, what are some of your secrets for doing that? Challenging yourself to continue to grow? Um, there's a book called the four agreements yeah. and even though I'm, I'm a very spiritual person, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I, I look to other philosophies. I look to other um, uh, personality management tools. Um, I feel that, that studying Buddhism or something like that doesn't hurt my Christianity. If anything, it, it probably enhances it because I think that, that there's way more in, 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 in Buddhist thought and four agreements that deal with psychology than spirituality. All right. Uh, would, where you connect with, with, you know, uh, your creation is a different thing. But when I think about managing my moods, managing my personality, managing my relationships, uh, the four agreements are absolutely elegant. There's uh, two do's and two don'ts. And, uh, it is, it is emotional exercise at its, hardest because, you know, it's really easy to talk about the four agreements, um, uh, when you're not facing a problem, when you're facing a problem, if you go through the four agreements, you'll see which one of those you're stuck on. And about once a year, uh, I'll, I'll do the little audio book again, just as a refresh. I, uh, I've always appreciated the energy Anthony Robbins brings to his topics. And, um, so I've always, I've always been very inspired by how Anthony Robbins will create a mental state change very quickly. You know, you come to one of his events and next thing you're walking across hot rocks, that, that happens. That's not BS, but what he's doing is taking you much faster into a better version of yourself than you could have ever gone alone. And that's what I think we should do in, in the physical realm. I really, I, I really think there's so much more on the table that we could, we could impart to somebody if we just knew what we were doing and scaled the information uh, correctly. I study uh, Alan Watts, a philosopher, an Anglican priest who went and worked with Dr. Suzuki to try to explain Buddhism and Hinduism to the Western mind. And uh, he is a very entertaining 
orator with a with a thick British accent talking about you know philosophical things and so I've really I've really liked to hear people who aren't just philosophers but they're orators uh, you know uh, Mark Twain I mentioned already and so I try to look at my profession through their eyes Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you can see all the BS, you can see all the ego, you can see all the unnecessary hot packs. And, and, you know, uh, I don't need, I don't need different color ankle tape. As a matter of fact, the quicker you get the tape off that damn athlete, the more menacing they look. When I see an athlete all taped together, I know exactly what part of their body to hit. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, I'm an old player, man. You know, so, so you don't, you don't need all these, these braces and this adornment unless you absolutely do, but how much, how much, much of what we do embracing and taping now is a fashion statement. So, you know, but when you, when, when we, when I step out of my professional mind and then look back at physical therapy, sports medicine, strength, conditioning, fitness with a philosopher's mind, with a scientist's mind, with a physicist's mind, um, it's really easy to see the BS and the political agendas and the, the things that are done to sell equipment and programs and the things that are actually done that are meaningful and make impactful change. And, and as long as we're in the tube, we can't see it. As long as we're reading that journal every month and stuff. But seriously, give yourself a sabbatical from, you know, the blogs and the articles and stuff like that and really ask the hard questions about movement. And you'll come right back to it with, a, with an enlightened perspective. And you'll realize that, that most people are debating details that are two steps removed from a bad turn. You wouldn't even be debating these details if you hadn't made the wrong turn on the diagnosis. So, yeah. last couple of questions. One is, um, what did you learn about yourself from becoming a father? Oh my gosh, uh, that I'm not as good as I think I am. <laughs> um, how forgiving kids are. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I got three daughters. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what it's like, uh, raising a son. Um, I think, uh, from what I've learned with the guys I, I work with and stuff like that, some of us have all sons, some of us have all daughters. If you have sons, you're going to have a lot of damaged property. If you have daughters, you're going to have a lot of uh, drama, but your property will be pretty well intact. So I got, I, you know, I mean, so. <laughs> I, I, I've the, learned. <laughs> take it or leave. Yeah. Last, last question, my friend. Um, when you perish from this earth, and hopefully it's not for a very long time, how would you like to be remembered? Um, with the best collection of friends and family a guy could have. Sir, thank you very much for taking the time. I could probably do it for a few more hours, but it's uh, it's always uh, been uh, a pleasure to spend time with you, and uh, I will look forward to doing it again sometime. But thanks again. No, I appreciate it, man. I, I like the way you look at things. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. You too, brother. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.